The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a new story set in the best-selling Gordian Division series, Ishmael Jones searches for a killer in a haunted house, and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. Today, we bring you Griffin Barber's discussion with Simon R. Green about the Ishmael Jones novel, The Dark Side of the Road. But first, the news. Head on over to Bain.com and check out this month's free short story, The Bloody Dentist by Jacob Hollow. When a dead body badly beaten, is found in a narrow corridor carved out of the ice shelf beneath Promise City on Titan, the largest and most populous of Saturn's moons. It falls to acting deputy Detective Isaac Cho of the Consolidated System Police to solve the case. What at first looks like a routine gangland slaying, however, soon turns out to be anything but it seems there may be a serial killer on the loose, one that takes gruesome trophies from his kills, earning him the nickname, The Bloody Dentist. Eager to prove himself to his mentor, Detective Cho must do what it takes to solve the crimes before The Bloody Dentist strikes again. That's The Bloody Dentist by Jacob Hollow, free to read now at Bain.com. And that's it for the news. Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Simon R. Green is an established urban fantasy author with more than two decades of excellence behind him. In that time, he's written media tie-ins, several successful series in space opera fantasy, and the Ishmael Jones series of urban fantasy tales we are here to talk about today. The first of that series, The Dark Side of the Road, forthcoming from Bain Books, is an excellent introduction to the series and to the writings of our guest today, Mr. Simon R. Green. Hello and welcome, Simon. Great to be here. So, uh, hardest question first. Uh, what is the coolest aspect of the dark side of the road for you? I've always been a big fan of the Agatha Christie style of murder mystery, Poirot, Miss Marple, and so on. And I was appearing in an open-air Shakespeare production, Anthony and Cleopatra, I was playing Brutus, and we were putting it on in the grounds of a manor house just outside Bradford Naven, which is where I live. And while I was there, just looking at the, the grounds, touring the house, which is a marvellous old manor house, uh, the, the present owners, they actually opened a hidden wall in, door in the wall to show a secret passage, which is so cool. And I was looking at this, thinking, this is a marvellous setting for an old-fashioned Agatha Christie-style murder mystery. So after the play was over, I sat down with this idea and I remember the short story that I'd written some years before, and the two together suddenly fitted perfectly, and the first draft just poured out of me. What's different about this series is Ishmael Jones himself, the lead character. To put him in context, back in 1963, a star fell from out of the heavens and landed in an English field. Or to put it another way, an alien starship with its superstructure on fire came howling in from the outer dark and crashed in an English field. All of the crew were killed except one. 
the ship's transformation machines rewrote him right down to his DNA to make him human so he could pass among us unnoticed. Unfortunately, the transformation machines were damaged by the crash, and they wiped all his memories of who and what he was before he was human. So he has a basic memory of something happened, but that's all he's got. And he spent the last years living among us. And he might have thought it was all a fantasy, except for the point that he hasn't aged a day since 1963. He's worked for any number of underground and secret organizations in the past. He's now working for a, uh, a very mysterious group called simply the organization. And they're so mysterious, even he doesn't know who they are or what they are. But they keep him hidden from a very inquisitive world. And in return, he solves mysteries which have weird and uncanny elements. So putting those two together produced a murder mystery, which was different from what's gone before, but still absolutely fascinated me because Ishmael is very much the outsider character. He's outside looking in, which means he sees things that other people don't, which enables him to solve the mystery. Right. So uh, did you stumble on that aspect? It sounds as if you uh, kind of did, or you... Uh, hammered together these two things that really uh, excite you as far as uh, mystery, uh, the Agatha Christie kind of thing, and then the, the almost uh, Starman-esque uh, yeah. uh, outsider. Um, and uh, did the did the character come separate to you, or did the Agatha wanted to write a, an Agatha Christie kind of closed uh, room uh, murder mystery come first, or? I really wasn't sure where Ishmael was going when I started writing, but I just plunged into the first chapter, and his voice just emerged as I was writing. And as I kept going, he just opened up before me, and suddenly there were all these different things that he could do, different aspects, and he was just a joy to write. His dialogue just flowed, which doesn't always happen. And so... When you get a happy accident like that, you run with it and be very grateful. Yeah. I do enjoy the way he answers questions with like a two. Like there'll be a almost a paragraph of question, and he'll be like, "No." <laughs> yeah. uh, very very simple, very short, but also uh, or or yes, uh, but leaves so much to be uh, uh, you know to be answered still uh, in the mind of the reader. Uh, uh, yeah. I really it tells you just enough and no more. Right, exactly. And then might mis- misdirect you if you have uh, your own uh, predilections and asking the question. Um, well, like about Ishmael is, I mean, every book in the series starts with Call Me Ishmael, which tells you where he got his name from, because he's got no memory. So obviously the first book he found was Moby Dick. Right. He took Ishmael and he thought Jones, that's a common name, therefore Ishmael Jones will allow me to pass completely unnoticed. He really doesn't understand that every time he says his name, everybody just looks at him. Right. <laughs> Especially if he, being says it, if he says it in that format as well. Oh, <laughs> Call me yeah. Ishmael, yeah. Oh, so yeah. Uh, it's, the dark uh, side of the road has at its heart an unreliable narrator. Ishmael, not because he doesn't want to tell us what he's done or is, but because he himself is not so sure. Um, it sounds as if that kind of... Uh, character kind of grew out of the, the how do I tell this story um, and a lot of the exploration of him uh, revealed a lot more for you to kind of sink your teeth into um, is, is there any other character that kind of uh, in your reading 
uh, or your background that kind of gave you uh, uh, this character as, a, as somebody you wanted to write about? The newest I can think of as an inspiration would be some stories that were written back, originally back in the 60s by a mystery writer called Edward Hock, who's basically been known for writing fairly standard uh, detective stories and uh, puzzle stories. But he wrote this series of stories about a character called Simon Ark, who might or might not be a 2,000-year-old man who's hunting traces of the devil throughout history. And it's never made clear, is he or isn't he, but they were wonderful mystery stories with this weird element just floating around in the background. I read these long a long time ago and loved them. And I always thought I'd like to do something like that, that, that mixture of things. I think that's at least partly where it might help to inspire Ishmael. Um, but the, the real fascination for me about Ishmael is because he's the outsider. He spent you know, 50 or 60 years among us but he's not one of us and never will be. He's learned to pass as human by watching us, but there's still always something a bit different about him. One of the things that Ishmael himself always worries about is that it's like the old story of the philosopher who woke up from dreaming he was a butterfly and wondered, is he a man who dreamed to be a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming of being a man? Ishmael is always concerned that really... He's a human mask on an alien that's asleep. And if it ever wakes up, might it decide it doesn't need a human mask anymore? So he's trying to embrace his humanity, cling to his humanity. And this comes out when, when, he's, when he actually meets the family at the manor house that he's been invited to. And he starts to connect with some of them in a way that he's never done before. And of course, this leads into the plot. The reason why the book is called The Dark Side of the Road, this is uh, a quote from Bob Dylan. He said, if you're going to be an outlaw, you have to walk on the dark side of the road. And that's very much what Ishmael is. He's the outlaw, he's the outsider, who desperately wants to be part of what's going on. So it's interesting to me, because I, I, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about uh, Lasney and uh, Nine Princes and Amber. Uh, yes, kind of... and another one I was, a series I was very fond of back in the day. Right. Um, the Zelazny books, it's all about uh, Corwin recovering his memories and discovering right. who he is and what he is. And of course, that's the one thing that Ishmael can never do. Right. But Side is the first of a series of books. It wasn't intended to be. Um, I wrote it as a one-off. I thought it was a great idea. I had a great load of mystery plot. I wrote it. And it came out originally from seven books here in Britain. And I thought, great, it's out there. And then seven came back and said, actually, um, that sold rather well. Can we have two more? I thought, oh, well, um, okay, since you're asking. I did two more. And they said, hmm, actually, they did really well. Can we? And they just kept going. And finally, after ten books, Bain came along and said, uh, we'd like to take over and present to an American audience. And they are doing the 11th book, which will be coming out, that's uh, Haunted by the Past. And, yes, and hopefully we'll be able to talk series. about that in a few weeks. Okay. And the point of the series is that in this first book, Ishmael meets, he's gone to a Belcourt manor. And as in all Agatha Christie books, the Belcourt family, there's their guests, and they're all isolated by this terrible blizzard that holds them in one place 
and then people start dying one by one. And our hero has to work out what's going on and why, why there's anybody still left. And one of the people he meets is Belcourt's young daughter, Penny. And for the first time in his life, there's a click, there's an attraction, there's a chemistry. And the two of them develop this bond. It's almost Holmes and Watson that they end up working together to solve the mystery. And as the books go on, it's about their growing relationship that she is teaching him how to be human by showing him what love is and he's experiencing love and relationship for the first time and that's changing him as he goes along. So uh, which character on the dark side of the road kind of surprised you as you were working on the book? Well, I think it's got to be Penny. I mean, she wasn't written to be, uh, you know, the, the sidekick, the support. She was just one of the family and I thought at some point, you know, she'll make a nice red herring. Then I, they met, and I started writing the dialogue, and I'm going, wait a minute, I didn't plan for this, but suddenly there's, I can't get them to shut up. They're just going back and forth, they're cracking gags, they're exchanging confidences, they're, they're connecting. I thought, right, you know, when you get a happy accident like this, you think, pick it up and run with it. And suddenly the whole thrust of the book changed to be not just an outsider solving a mystery, but an outsider for the first time connecting to somebody and solving a mystery as a partnership. So uh, in a similar vein, uh, which character from the dark side of the road would you want to avoid like the plague and uh, why? Okay, this comes back to uh, the Belcourt family again. The, uh, the old man who is the head of the family has a second, much younger trophy wife, which is Melanie, and she is a predator. You can tell, you know, she married him for the money, the house, the background, and she, as you go through the book, you can see that she's got all kinds of connection with everybody there and that she is trying to run everything that's happening. And, of course, when you've got somebody like that and you've got murders happening, you've got to wonder, is she connected? Is she the murderer? Has she hired somebody to be the murderer? Or is somebody using her as the red herring because she's so obvious? But she is, I think it's fair to say, a nasty piece of work. You would run a mile to avoid her. But at the same time, you can see, I hope you can see if I've written her properly, you can see the attraction of her. She's very sharp, she's very beautiful, and she can dominate a room with her personality. You can see why old man Belcourt managed her. And you can also see why Penny, who is Belcourt's daughter, but not Melanie's daughter, you can see why those two are each of throats for the whole of the book. So uh, in a similar vein, uh, also, which character would you want as an ally? I would say the butler, who is actually called Jeeves. Now, the whole point is he's not actually a butler. He's been hired by Old Man Belcourt to be his bodyguard and security, but he's playing the role of the butler. So he's taken on the name Jeeves, and he's trying to, to play the role as best he can. And as the murder starts happening, of course, he, he thinks he's the hero of the tale. He's leading into action and trying to, uh, to be the man, the James Bond character. But he is so out of his depth that eventually he has to turn to Ishmael because Ishmael clearly knows what he's doing. And Jeeves essentially becomes almost a second Watson. He's the man of action that you send in you know, to do the, uh, the action-adventure stuff. And... Again, 
it just turned out to be so much fun to write. He is very dry. He's very droll. He has no respect for anybody in there. He can see them for what they really are. But at the same time, he's the guy who has to stand between them and the bullet. He's there to protect them. And he takes that very seriously, which I think is what makes him the fascinating character he is. Excellent. So the dark side of the road naturally deals with things uh, of a dark and mysterious nature. Uh, did you find this to be your natural métier, or did you kind of fall into it? Most of my books, I've done lots of series down the years, tend to deal with this side of things. It's our own hidden secrets, our own dark side, which derives us. It's, in a sense, it's the secrets from our past that shape us and continue to move us through the, the things we do. And by delving into this, particularly in a murder mystery, everybody, every character in the book has a secret, something that matters very much to them. And our hero has to dig in and find out what they are. And of course, most of the secrets have nothing to do with what's going on with the actual murders. But by uncovering the secrets, we, we start to understand why these characters are the way they are and why they react to the other characters the way they do. And once you've, you've dug into that, then you start to empathize with the characters to care about them. And that's important. If, you care, if a murderer is killing characters and you don't care about them, you don't care about the mystery, having a character you care about die, that makes the reader really want to get to the bottom of what's going on, if only to see the bad guy punished. It's part Certainly of the mystery of the murder. Right. Certainly works for me. Um, so I, I enjoyed the locker room nature of the mystery of the book. Um, without going too deep into spoiler land, uh, what inspired you? What gets its hooks into you about uh, working in that small narrative space? Well, the locked room is a classic in, in murder mystery fiction. I mean, Agatha Christie did God knows how many of them. It's, 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 it's the purity of it. You've got somebody lying dead in a room with absolutely no way that anybody could have got to them and working out the puzzle. At the end of it, it should be so cleverly done that the, the reader goes, oh, of course, it had to be that way. It's the only way it could be. But it is a very difficult thing to pull off convincingly. I can remember doing an earlier series. I did the Hawk and Fisher books, which is about two beat cops who lived in a Lord of the Rings-style city. And I had a lot to murder mystery in that. And I actually got halfway through the book before I realized to my horror that the solution not only didn't work, but couldn't be made to work. I had to completely abandon it, sit down and work out a whole new solution that didn't involve throwing out the first half I'd already written. I managed it, but it was rather tricky to do. But the, the locked room murder mystery always appeals to me because it's right there in front of you. I can give you the setting. I can give you the background. I can give you the clues. And then I've got to work in as many red herrings as possible to keep you from working out what I've done. Basically, I'm just tap dancing really fast and hoping you're not looking in the wrong place. Because I'm a firm believer in the fair play mystery. You've got all you need to solve this. It's up to you to put everything together before I tell you. And if I've done my job right, you should look back and go, of course, that's exactly how it had to be. <laughs> it certainly worked for me. The, uh, 
they're saying it occurs to me that the uh, uh, you must have like a, a, a an exceptional list of uh, favorites within that uh, that subgenre of mysteries. Uh, could you give us maybe your top two uh, locked room mysteries that you've read? Um, well, like I said, Agatha Christie has done so many. Also, Gail Marsh has done some some very good uh, mysteries of her own kind. But I always go back to not really to, people don't tend to think of him as a detective. But I grew up watching the um, the Saint TV show back in the city with Roger Moore, mm-hmm. yep. and I absolutely loved them. That was Simon Templer, the Saint. And my dad said, "You do know there's some books that it's based on?" I said, "No." And he had a whole bunch of them that he'd read, and he handed them over to me, and I just devoured them. And I went on to read everything that Leslie Charteris had written about the character. And he solved a number of cases. In particular, again, we're getting back to, to the mix-up of, of uh, detective and mystery. He wrote um, a, one of the same short stories, set on Loch Ness, in which he's been called in because apparently the Loch Ness monster has been killing people on the shores of the lock. And, of course, he uh, gets involved and he finds someone has been faking it to hide what's been going on. And there's a real locked room element to that. But what I absolutely loved about it, you get to the end of the story, the saint is confronting the villain, and the Loch Ness monster appears, grabs the villain, eats them, and disappears. And the saint just stands and goes, I'll never believe this one. (laughs) That's an excellent way to... Uh, that is a, pull the rug out from under people. Yeah, the reader. That's excellent. Lizzie Charter <laughs> is one of my all-time favorite authors. I absolutely love the mixture. He can do crime. He can do detective. He can do humor. He can do action. And he's what I call a fun read. His prose yeah. is just a pleasure to read. Well, I'm going to have to look for that as well. Uh, but uh, So The Dark Side of the Road relies on a slightly... Uh, darker cast of characters are, uh, and most of them have some connection to our narrator and or some kind of dark motive uh, for their actions. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that they, we deal a lot with how we as people deal with loss, vengeance, and duty. Um, are these matters you share a concern about in your day-to-day life or, or more of an excellent way to let the reader see inside the characters and what motivates them? Like I said, it's all about, we all have secrets. We all have the things that we hide from the rest of the world. And uncovering these things and bringing them out into the open enables us to to dig into why people are the way they are, why they do what they do, which leads us to the the motives. What motives could people have for being involved in, in a murder mystery? And I think digging into these things really is what derives a murder mystery. It's about the people. It's not just the mechanics of it, how was it done. It's about why. Why would somebody be led to, this, to these extremes of, of action? And watching how people react to a murder is just as important as working out why the murder is happening, how it affects people, how it drives them. And I really think that the whole point of a murder mystery is not just to give you the answer, but to show what's happened to the people involved. There was an excellent uh, BBC television series called Broadchurch, which yeah. was written by uh, Chibnall, who's one of the main Doctor Who people. And it was all about not so much who had been responsible for this crime. 
It was about the impact it had on the people of the small town where it was happening. In the end, who was guilty and why was almost incidental. It was about the impact and the changes it brought about in the community. And I've always felt that impact of the crime on how it changes the people is the important part of a murder mystery. I, I identify with that. I was 20 years a police officer in San Francisco. So okay, I, yeah, right. that, uh, uh, it's certainly much more about, for, certainly for those of us that are left behind, it's always about uh, what it's happens the survivors. to us. Yes. Yeah, the survivors that have to deal with the loss and uh, uh, okay. the impact, as you said. So uh, excellent. And it, it really is shown in this book. I, I very much enjoyed The Dark Side of the Road. Um, okay. I, penultimate, our penultimate question then is, what aside from the considerable raw entertainment value do you hope readers will carry with them? long after reading The Dark Side of the Road? Well, first, I hope they think it's fun. It is a classic Agatha Christie's on murder mystery with strange elements in it. It's, I'd be hard-pressed to name any other series that's quite like it. Um, as I say, it goes through a series of books. We're building the uh, relationship of Ishman and Penny. We also dig into what the organization really is, what it's about, why he's working for them, why they want him to work for them. And as we go through, it, it brings us up to the latest book, which Bain will be doing. It's called Haunted by the Past. And it's about a man who goes to a small hotel. He books into reception, goes up to his room, but never gets there. Somewhere along the way, he has completely and utterly vanished. So Ishmael and Penny are called in to solve the case. And it's not until they get to the hotel that they discover it's got a reputation as the most haunted house in England. And they have to discover, does this have anything to do with the vanishing? Is, it, uh, is somebody using it as a red herring, a distraction of what's really going on? And if I say anything about Darkseid, it is simply, here's a marvelous new character. Here's a really good, fun mystery. Have a good time. Excellent. So uh, our last questions, uh, question is, what conventions can your fans help to catch up with you at? And... Uh, what other work do you have in the pipeline for your fans to read? One of the things I've really missed in, in you know, the last two years of the play, because I got trapped in my house for pretty much two years, I missed conventions. I did quite a few American conventions before, and I'm planning to again. But at the moment, you know, I've been reading various common reports, and that it does seem to be that they're still saying everybody has to wear masks and everybody has to distance, and I thought that's, that's not really a convention. You go to a convention to meet people, to make connections, to have fun. And that's what I intend to do, but probably next year, I think. Hopefully things will have edged back more to normal by then. Um, and certainly I plan to, have, to get back to as many American conventions as will have me. Other series I'm working on at the moment, um, the first book I did for Bain was Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated, which is a new take on the old story. Um, that one about yourself well enough. I'm currently writing the sequel, which is Hide and Seek. And for uh, my British publisher, Seven, I'm doing a series which is the Gideon Sable Mysteries, who's a master thief who steals things that other people can't, like a ghost's clothes or a photo of a city that never existed. And it was created to be a kind of supernatural Ocean's Eleven that he puts together a crew with their own weird abilities to steal things that nobody else could. Again, that started out as a one-off, and it sold sufficiently well. I'm now doing the fourth one, and they're great fun to write. 
So that's what I'm doing at the moment. Thank you very much, folks. This has been uh, Simon R. Green and Griffin Barber speaking to you about the dark side of the road. Thank you and good night. Thank you. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Swathed in bandages and IV tubes, Halloran looked more like something out of an archaeological dig than a living person. But what was visible of his face looked happier than Johnny had seen it in months. As well it might, considering the lousy odds all three Cobras had somehow managed to survive. When we get off this rock, Johnny told the other, remind me to have you and Imel set up for a complete psych exam. You're both genuinely crazy. What? Because we pulled the same stupid trick you were going to try? Halloran asked innocently. Stupid trick nothing, Deutsch retorted from the bed next to Halloran's. Only a few bandages graced his form. Mute testimony to superior luck or skill. We were practically on top of the place when you and Ilona made your break, close enough that we were actually inside their temporary picket ring when they all charged out after you. It was perfectly straightforward tactically. It was just the implementation that got a bit sticky. Sticky my eye teeth. Some of us lost a lot of skin in there. Halloran jerked his head in Deutsch's direction. Now him you're welcome to have sent up. You should have seen the chances he took in there. Not to mention the way he stared down Borg and got everyone on the streets looking for you. Which, with a little unconscious help from the troughs, was what had ultimately saved Johnny's life. He wondered if the aliens had had any idea what Alona was really doing out there when they'd grabbed her. I owe you both a lot, he said, knowing how inadequate the words were. Thank you. Deutsch waved a hand in dismissal. Forget it. You'd have done the same for us. Besides, it was pretty much of a group effort, what with half of the Cranach underground taking their share of the risks, including broadcasting the location of that hidden tunnel entrance to us as soon as Ilona phoned in the details, Halloran added. I don't suppose they mentioned that one to you. No, I didn't think so. Now that was a stupid trick. They're damn lucky the troughs were too busy to trace the transmission. They certainly had the equipment to do so. I think the whole planet's going to need psychiatric help by the time this is over. Johnny smiled along with them, hiding the twinge of embarrassment that still accompanied references to Alona's part in the South Sector Underground's counterattack on the Tyler Mansion. Speaking of Alona, she's supposed to give me a ride to the new home Amaz moved me to, he told him. You guys take it easy, and I'll be back to give you a hand when you're ready to move. No rush, Halloran told him airily. These people treat me with a lot more respect than you two clowns anyway. He's definitely on the mend, Deutsch snorted. Get going, Johnny. No point in keeping Alona waiting for this. Alona was waiting inside the building foyer. All set, she asked briskly. Let's go, then. 
They're expecting you in a few minutes, and you know how nervous we get when schedules aren't met. She led the way outside to a car parked by the curb. They got in, and she headed north, and for the first time since their escape two days earlier, they were alone together. Johnny cleared his throat. So, how's the sifting at the mansion going? She glanced at him. Not too bad. Callie and ML and that East Sector team left a shambles, but we found a lot of interesting items the troughs didn't have time to destroy. I'd say that we've gotten far better than an even trade for those records of Johnny Moreau in action. No sign of them, huh? No, but it hardly matters. They'd almost certainly have transmitted the data elsewhere as soon as we escaped. Oh, I know, but I'd hoped that if we had the original tapes we could figure out exactly how much they'd learned about our gear and be able to estimate the added danger we'll be working under. Ah, yes, I guess that makes sense. I don't think you're going to have anything to worry about, though. Johnny snorted. You underestimate the Troft's ingenuity. Like you very nearly underestimated my kind heart. You could have told me you were with the underground, you know. He was expecting her to come out with some stiff and wholly inappropriate local security regulation, and so her reply when it finally came was something of a surprise. I could have, she acknowledged. And if you'd looked like you were making the wrong decision, I sure would have. But you'd jumped to a rather paranoid conclusion without any real evidence, and I... Well, I wanted to find out how far you'd go in acting on that conclusion. She took a deep breath. You see, Johnny, whether you know it or not, all of us who work and fight with you cobras are more than a little afraid of you. There have been persistent rumors since you first landed that you'd been given carte blanche by Asgard to do anything you considered necessary to drive the troughs off, including summary execution for any offense you decided you didn't like. Johnny stared at her. That's absurd. Is it? The Dominion can't exercise control over you from umpteen light years away, and we sure can't do it. If you've got the power anyway, why not make it official? Because, Johnny floundered, because that's not the way to liberate Adirondack. Depends on whether that's really Asgard's major objective, doesn't it? If they're more interested in breaking the Troft's war capabilities, our little world is probably pretty expendable. Johnny shook his head. No, I realize it's hard to tell from here, but I know for a fact that the Cobras aren't on Adirondack to win anything at the expense of the people. If you knew the screening they put us through, and how many good men were bounced even after the training, sure, I understand all that, but military goals do change. She shrugged. But with any luck, the whole question will soon be academic. What do you mean? She favored him with a tight smile. We got an off-world signal this morning. All underground and Cobra units are to immediately begin a pre-invasion sabotage campaign. Johnny felt his mouth drop open. Pre-invasion? That's what they said. And if it succeeds, we owe the Cobras a lot, Johnny, and we won't forget you. But I don't think we'll be sorry to see you go, either. To that, Johnny had no reply, and the rest of the trip was made in silence. Ilona drove several blocks past Johnny's old apartment building, stopping finally before another, even more nondescript place. A tired-eyed woman greeted him at the door and took him to a top-floor apartment where his meager belongings had already been delivered. On top of the bags was a small envelope. Frowning, Johnny opened it. Inside was a plain piece of paper with a short, painstakingly written note. Dear Johnny, Mom says you're going somewhere else now and aren't going to be staying with us anymore. Please be careful and don't get caught anymore, 
and come back to see me. I love you. Danice. Johnny smiled as he slipped the note back into its envelope. You be careful too, Danice, he thought. Maybe you, at least, will remember us kindly. Interlude The negotiations were over. The treaty was signed, ratified, and being implemented, and the euphoric haze that had pervaded the Central Committee's meetings for the past two months was finally starting to fade. Vanis Darl had expected Comité Horm to pick this point to bring up the Cobras again, and he was right. It's not a question of ingratitude or injustice. It's a question of pure necessity, the Comité told the Assembly, his voice quavering only slightly. Seated behind him, Darl eyed Horm's back uneasily, seeing in his stance the older man's fatigue. He wondered if the others knew how much the war had taken out of Horm. He wondered whether they would consequently recognize the urgency implied by his being here to deliver this message personally. From their faces, though, it was obvious most of them didn't, an attitude clearly shown by the first person to rise when Horm had finished. "'If you'll forgive the tone, Horm,' the other said with a perfunctory gesture of respect, "'I think the committee has heard quite enough of your preoccupation with the Cobras. If you'll recall, it was at your insistence that we directed the army to offer them exceptionally liberal re-enlistment terms. And in your place, I would consider it a victory that over seventy percent chose to accept. We've all heard from Commander Mendro and his associates just how much of their equipment the other twenty-odd percent will take back to civilian life with them, and we've concluded the Army's plans are acceptable. To again suggest now that we force those men to remain in the Army strikes me as a bit over-concerned. Or paranoid, as the word will be interpreted, Darl thought. But Horm had one tack nuke yet in reserve, and as the comité picked up a mag card from his stack, Darl knew he was about to set it off. I remember Commander Mendro's visits quite well, thank you, he addressed the other comité with a nod, and I've done some checking on the facts and figures he presented. Dropping the mag card into his reader, he keyed to the first of his chosen sections and sent the picture to the other viewers around the table. You will note here the percentage of Cobra trainees that were actually commissioned and sent into the war, displayed as a function of time. The different colors refer to the continually updated initial screening tests the army used. A few frowns began to appear. You're saying they never got more than eighty-five percent into the field? A comité halfway around the table spoke up. The number I remember is ninety-seven percent. That's the number that were physically able to go after training, Horm told her. The rest of them were dropped for psychosociological reasons. So, someone else shrugged. No testing methods ever perfect. As long as they caught all of the unacceptable ones. I expect Horm's point is whether or not they did catch all of them, another comité suggested dryly. A simple check of eyewitness accounts from Silvern and Adirondack will take months to complete, Horm interrupted. But there's more. Dismiss, if you like, the possibility of antisocial leanings in any of the Cobras. Are you aware they'll be taking their combat nanocomputers back with them, with no reprogramming? All eyes turned to him. 
What are you talking about? Mendro said... The speaker paused. Mendro deflected the question exceptionally well, Horm said grimly. The matter of the fact is that the nanocomputers are read-only and can't be reprogrammed, and after being in place even a short time, they can't be removed without excessive trauma to the brain tissue that's subsequently settled in around them. Why weren't we told? Initially, I presume, because the army wanted the cobras and was afraid we'd veto or modify their chosen design. More recently, the point was probably not brought up because there wasn't anything anyone could do about it. All of which Darrell knew was only partly correct. All the data on the nanocomputers had been in the original cobra proposals, had anyone besides Horm deemed it worth digging out. Perhaps Horm was saving that fact for future leverage. The discussion raged back and forth for a while, and long before it was over, the remaining air of euphoria had vanished from the chamber. But if the new sense of realism raised Darl's hopes, the end result dashed them again. By a 19 to 11 vote, the committee chose not to interfere with the Cobra demobilization. You should know by now that clear-cut victories are as rare as oxygen worlds, Horm chided Darl later in his office. We got them thinking, really thinking, and at this stage that's as much as we could have hoped for. The committee will be watching the Cobras carefully now, and if action turns out to be necessary, it'll take a minimum amount of prodding to get it, all of which could have been avoided if they'd just paid attention to the Cobra project in the first place, Darl muttered. No one can pay attention to everything, Horm shrugged. Besides, there's an important psychological effect operating here. Most of the Dominion sees the military and the government as essentially two parts of a single monolithic structure. And whether they admit it or not, the committee carries a remnant of that assumption in its collective subconscious. You and I, who grew up on Asgard, have what I think is a more realistic perspective on exactly where and to what extent the military's goals differ from ours. They conceived the Cobras with the sole purpose of winning a war in mind, and every bit of their training and equipment, including the nanocomputer design, made sense within those limited parameters. What the committee should have done, but didn't, was to remember that all wars eventually end. Instead, we assumed the army had already done that thinking for us. Darl tapped two fingers on the arm of his chair. Maybe next time they'll know better. Possibly, but I doubt it. Horm leaned back in his chair with a tired sigh. Anyway, this is the situation we have to live with. What do you suggest as our next move? Darl pursed his lips. Horm had been doing this a lot lately and whether it was due to simple mental fatigue or a conscious effort to sharpen the younger man's executive capabilities, it was a bad sign. Very soon now, Darl knew, Horm's hot seat was going to pass to him. We should obtain a listing of all returning Cobras and their destinations, he told Horm. Then we should set up local and regional data triggers to funnel all government-accessible news concerning them directly to you, with special flags for criminal or other abnormal behavior. Horm nodded. Agreed. Have someone, uh, Joromo maybe, get started on it. Yes, sir. Darl stood up. 
I think, though, that I'll do this one personally. I want to make sure it's done right. A ghost of a smile flicked across Horm's lips. You humor an old man's obsession, Darl, and I appreciate it. But I think you'll find, you and the rest of the committee, that the Cobras are going to have far more impact on the Dominion than even I'm afraid of. He turned his chair to gaze out the window at the city below. I just wish, he added softly, I knew what form that impact was going to take. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Simon R. Green for talking with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>